0: Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We are going to uh, jump right into chapter 15 today. The title of today's sermon is A Sure Hope. A man uh, approached a Little League baseball game one afternoon, as uh, grown men are wont to do, I guess. Uh, it's kind of, I, I wrote the illustration down, and I thought, well, that's kind of a weird illustration. I don't know many grown men that just approach Little League baseball games, unless they're up to nefarious activities. Kind of a strange thing. But bear with me. This, this man approaches this Little League baseball game, and he, he goes over to the dugout and asks one of the, the boys on the team what the score is. And the boy responded, 18 to nothing, we're behind. Which, you know, that's not good. It's not good. The the spectator says, whoa, man, <laughs> that's, that sounds discouraging. That, that's a discouraging score. And the, the young boy replied, why should I be discouraged? We haven't even gotten to bat yet. <laughs> right? So... So, not that it's supposed to be incredibly humorous. Josh thought it was funny. Thank you. Thank you, Josh, for laughing at the joke. But uh, the idea is that that it's so easy for us to be discouraged, right? The spectator is observing and he hears the score of the game, and his first thought is, it's impossible to come back. He assumes that it's a hopeless situation, right? But the young man who doesn't know any better replies, well, why be discouraged? I haven't even gotten to bat yet. There's still hope. There's still opportunity. And I think this story represents for us really the position that many of us live in, the, uh, the heart posture, the philosophical or the ideological way in which we approach the world. We live in a world that does feel hopeless. We are behind, and it doesn't seem like it's possible that we can ever get caught up. Right? That's the way it feels. People in our world, they put their hope in institutions. They put their hope in idols. They look everywhere for peace. And none of those things provide solace. None of them promise a better tomorrow. None of those things promise them that things are going to be okay. We expect a a degree of futility among the lost, don't we? As Christians, when we look at the lost world, we we kind of expect them to be hopeless. But on a Christian, hopelessness is like rags on a king. It's a poor representation of our reality. When a Christian is hopeless and in despair, it's unbecoming of their station. In chapter 15, Paul is going to address a heresy that was beginning to grow in the church of Corinth. One that was robbing the congregation of hope in their future. A lack of hope, as we all know, a lack of hope for the future always produces emptiness for today, doesn't it? And, and I want to you know, speak honestly to, to you this morning, and I know for a fact that there are people in here that are concerned about their futures. They're, they're concerned, uh, you're concerned with what your future might hold. You don't know where you're going. You don't have vision for your life. Your current situations are all pointing to directions that don't feel good or exciting. You don't have prospects. And because you don't have an idea of what your future holds, it produces an emptiness for today. And so much depression is rooted in this kind of thinking. The growing belief in Corinth was that the Christian would not rise from the dead. That there was no hope of a future bodily resurrection. That was the heresy that was beginning to grow in the church in Corinth. Now whether this view came from false teachers or just simple human reasoning, we don't know. Paul doesn't address those things. He doesn't tell us where this false teaching came from. What we do know is that without the hope of a resurrection, without the hope of an eternity with Christ, then our faith becomes aimless, insincere, and empty of strength. Without the resurrection, we become hopeless. And it's for this reason Paul begins this portion of his letter by pointing to the resurrection of Christ, the foundation of our faith, and the archetype of our future resurrection. Okay? It's a fairly formal introduction this morning. I apologize. I'm usually not that formal. Is that all right, Micah? Okay. We'll loosen up. We'll loosen up here. Here's the question for this morning. We have a question that we need to ask, and it's this. What does the resurrection mean to me? What does it mean to me personally? What does it mean to me? Does it have meaning? Or... Have I trivialized it? Has it become background to my Christian reality? Has it become something that I've forgotten or taken for granted? And I think for many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, the resurrection has lost its strength. The story of Christ's resurrection and the promise of our resurrection has lost its strength in our life. And it's for that reason that we walk around hopeless today. We are kings in rags. Let's pray and then we'll we'll read our passage and get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this people. Thank you for your word. God, thank you for an opportunity to worship you. God, I pray that you would speak to us today of your resurrection. That you would remind us of the power of the day that you laid death in the grave. Lord, the fact that you have taken away the sting of death from the Christian life. It really is our hope. And it does provide us with a strength. But uh, Lord, to be honest with you, so many of us forget it. And so we are depressed. And uh, we, we, we put stakes down in, in this earth. And we tie ourselves and tether ourselves to this temporal reality in it, and it just compounds the problem. And we start looking to one another. And we start looking to to our jobs, our careers, our our degrees. And we look to those things and we say, maybe this will make me happy. Maybe this will be the change that I'm looking for. Maybe this will bring hope for tomorrow. And we've we've just completely forgotten what You've given us in the resurrection of Christ. It becomes, it becomes um, insignificant in our lives. God, forgive us. And help us to see the resurrection for what it truly is. It is our strength. It is our power. It is our hope. Give us a sure hope this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15.1 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, He was seen of above five hundred brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also, as as of one born out of due time. We're going to stop there, and we'll come to that second portion next week. Let's talk about the surety of our message. So Paul opens this portion of the letter by bringing his listeners back to the foundation of their faith. He's bringing to their remembrance how eight years earlier he showed up suddenly in Corinth and he began preaching in the synagogues and he began going into homes and he began teaching this foreign message that many of those, of those Roman believe, uh, 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 pagans would have never heard up to that point, And that's this, that the Son of God came into this world, that he lived a perfect life, that he loved humanity, that he healed the sick, and that he gave his own life to forgive us of sin. That he rose again the third day. And so Paul is reminding them in this moment that this was the message that he delivered to them and it's the message that they believed on with their whole hearts. He's saying, remember, remember how I delivered this message to you. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you previously, right? Right? Here Paul presents again this gospel message to the church in Corinth. And as he begins his redeclaration, we are reminded of what the gospel meant to Paul, to him personally. He makes this this very personal. See, he believed it. He believed the gospel. He believed in the resurrection. And because of that, it led him to shout it from the rooftops. Here's our first key point for today. There is no message in the universe with greater implications than the message of Jesus Christ. There is no greater word, there is no greater knowledge, there is no greater truth than the truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, came to earth and gave his life for us in order to redeem humanity back to himself. Some of you are familiar with this C.S. Lewis quote, but he said that Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance, the only thing that it cannot be is moderately important. And yet, that's how we behave. That's how the the hopeless Christian, the fleshly Christian, the one who's put their faith in Christ, but but yet removed the importance of the resurrection from their life. That's how they behave. They behave as though the gospel is moderately important. Paul believed that the message of the death, burial, and resurrection was the hope for humanity. And he preached it as the agent of the world's salvation. That's how he approached it. He believed, with all his believing, that God had sent him to go and preach this message that the whole world might be saved. I mean, that From the outside looking in, that seems like a very narcissistic proposition. But when the king of kings has tasked you to do a work, and he's told you that he walks with you, and that he empowers you for that very work, and he asks you to deliver this message to people, that their souls might be saved, you too should believe that you are the agent of salvation for the world. That God wants to use you in a missional way to see the world saved. Look at Acts 18.4. It says of Paul that he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. This was his lifestyle. And this is the lifestyle of every person who truly believes that the resurrection is real. When he declared the gospel, he declared it with confidence. Because to him it was true. And as he preached in Corinth or Philippi or Cyprus or Ephesus, his words were always the same. There was no wavering in his speech, no variance to the contents of what he said. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, he says See, Paul preached a message that did not require apology or amendment. And yet so many people who call themselves Christian today walk around apologizing for the gospel. Amending the literality of what the word of God says. They strive to make the gospel message enticing to people who don't believe. And when they do, they rob it of its its severity and soberness. They rob it of its strength. There are a lot of people apologizing for the gospel. They're regretful. They're regretful of the concept of sin and death. They're regretful of the idea of repentance, the need to turn away from sin. They're afraid to call sin, sin. They're afraid to acknowledge that when people die, they go to hell. They're embarrassed by the Scripture's thorough depiction of hell. So they just refuse to to talk about it. When they present the gospel, they're afraid to talk about the fact that if you don't believe that you will spend eternity separated from Christ and you will spend it in torment, they're afraid to talk about it. They're ashamed of the cross. They're ashamed of how gruesome and bloody our Savior truly was. They're afraid to talk about how he was mocked. And they're afraid to say things like, By Jesus' blood, we are washed free from our sin. So-called Christians are revising a message that was never theirs to revise in the beginning. It's a message that was declared for 2,000 years before you and I. And it's a message That many believers, much more faithful than you and I, have given their lives for. When people diminish the gospel message, they rob the world of light and they quiet the hope that we're supposed to hold to so tightly. They silence it. So here's my question for you, okay? This is what I wanted to get to. It's this. Are you preaching the gospel? And this is a relevant question for Christians because not every Christian does. And I want to point out the fact that if you don't, if you aren't actively preaching the gospel, maybe that somehow correlates to the fact that you feel hopeless, Maybe there's a connection to your hopelessness and your lack of purpose. Are you preaching the gospel? And if so, are you preaching it in simplicity as the truth that it is? Do you believe that through Christ all might be saved? John 14, 6 says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life? Paul did. And it affected the way in which he lived. Verse 1 Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. This is the gospel that the church in Corinth had received. This is the gospel message they were sincerely convinced by and believed in their heart. Something's going on over there. Let me check that out. It is it is the rock on which we stand. Okay? It's the rock on which we stand. And it's the rock on which Paul stood. And so here's our key point so that we're not looking at the door and wondering what the heck's going on. <laughs> okay? See how easily distracted we are? Here's the next key point. And it's this the gospel is our sure footing. It's our sure footing. Now, is it it the sure footing for you? Is it your sure footing? Do you live in the reality of what you believe? Paul suggests that perhaps some of the people in the church in Corinth had only just professed that they were Christians but never actually believed in their hearts that Jesus Christ resurrected. But I think, I think, that most of us in this room are Christians who've believed on the gospel but refused to stand there. I think most of us aren't struggling with whether or not we've put our faith in Christ. Some of you may be. So maybe in this room, there are people in this room this morning who have, they say that they're Christians, believe that they're Christians, but have never actually put their faith in Christ. There, there may be people like that in the room this morning. But for the most part, this room is comprised of people who who believe on Jesus, who believe in the resurrection, but just fail to stand there from day to day. They they, they fail to, to put their hope in that every single day. And it's because we forget. We forget. You know, I was thinking about how Peter walked on water, you know? You guys know this story, right? How Peter walked on water. Now, water is a fairly perilous substance to be walking on, right? Uh, n- you know, you I've seen a lot of these Instagram, uh, these TikTok videos where people like try to, to walk across water. Have you seen any of this? Yeah, they put like on funny shoes and things like that, and they try to walk across water. Right? They're not really, they're not really walking on water. Water would be a tricky substance to try to walk on, right? None of us have done it. But but Peter did, until he suddenly forgot his faith, right? Until he forgot his faith and began to sink. Now, here's the deal we have been called to stand on the cornerstone of Christ, we have been called to stand on the rock. It's our sure hope. It's a, power, it's a powerful stu- substance. It's easy to, to stand upon. It's true and it's sure. And yet, some, some of us, in a lack of faith, have begun to waver on the rock. We mock Peter because he couldn't walk on water, but can you stand on the rock? Are you faithfully standing on the rock? Which is worse? Which is more faithless? Perhaps you stumble and fall because the gospel is no longer effectual. Perhaps you've lost your first love. You know, to the church in Ephesus, Jesus had John write in chapter 2, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. And he says to them, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, when you leave your first love, it causes you to fall. And you can fall even from the rock, even from the surety of the resurrection. It is only by the message of Jesus, the doctrine of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that we will have surety when the dark days come. All we have to stand on is our first love. It's the only thing. But so many of us are stepping away from the rock to, to test other surfaces. To see whether or not those things will also bring us hope. We're, we're looking, listen, we're looking to careers, careers, we're looking to relationships with other people we are even looking to the church in hopes that it'll bring us happiness and in our mind with happiness hope but that's just not how it works see our hope our hope is in our first love Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the promise of Scripture. The only message that the world needs in order to find hope is this. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 For this cause also thank we God without ceasing because when ye receive the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. We have to believe it. Now here's the thing that I'm, 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 I'm trying to speak to, and I'm, I'm, being, I'm being very tied to my notes this morning, so I want to step away for just a second, and I want to address something. Sometimes I notice in ministry... That among our leadership, that we begin to feel really burdened by life and ministry, we get tugged on, we get pulled many different directions, and, and people are coming to us for answers, and, and what happens is we begin to feel like we can't do it. We begin to feel like like... There's no hope that, 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 that I can't be used that that what what I've been called to do is just too big I can't do it and we begin getting afraid. we, we get afraid and as we get afraid, we begin to isolate and as we isolate ourselves we we become people that are completely without legs. We have nothing to stand on. We begin to slip. We begin to fall. And and the truth is, at the end of the day, it's because, it's because we've forgotten the power of the resurrection and the surety of our hope in Jesus Christ. We've forgotten our first love. Now, I believe that this also happens with those of you who are just learning to follow Jesus Christ. Those of you who are in discipleship, those of you who are a part of a Bible study. What happens is you begin to look to your Bible study leader and the church for all the answers. And when people don't show you the amount of time and energy, when someone doesn't take your phone call late at night, When you get frantic and you're looking for answers, and there's not someone there for you immediately when you want them, you lose hope. You isolate, you disappear. And the truth of the matter is this that leader, that pastor, and that church are not where your hope lies. Your hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your hope is in the gospel message. Your hope is in in what he did for you. So when things feel hopeless, it's because you've forgotten your first love. Now let's take a minute to address the terms of the gospel because I think they're relevant to this conversation. Remember, Paul's trying to convince the church in Corinth that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and their future resurrection... Is true. He's trying to provide them with the evidence. And so here in verse 3, he presents to them afresh the terms of the gospel. Verse 3 says this for I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul says the terms of the gospel are sure. And he says this, that first and foremost, Christ died for our sins. He gave his life. And no one really disputes the death of Christ, historically speaking. Right? All historians basically affirm the fact that a man named Jesus Christ died at the hands of the Roman government. And that he was given over by his own people. That he was betrayed. These facts of history, basically everyone is sure of. But what we know is more than that. What we know is that he gave his body to be broken willingly. That he laid his own life down. Why? Why? In Christ's own words, what he would say is that he was making a way for forgiveness. He laid his life down that we might have forgiveness of sin. He died the death that we deserved. He gave Himself. Then it says in the passage, as Paul goes on, he says that He was buried. He was buried, which seems obvious. But it's significant to say. It's significant because an occupied tomb became an empty tomb. It's important to say that Jesus was buried because Jesus also resurrected It's important to note because when they went to the tomb, it was empty. He left no body behind in that grave. And even today, that very grave is empty. Norman Geisler says, if Christ did not rise in the the same physical body that was placed in the tomb, then the resurrection loses its value as an evidential proof of his claim to be God. It loses its, its historical persuasive value. In other words, he had to be put into a grave in order for us to find that it's empty. And so he was buried. He was buried on our behalf. And of course, he rose again. He says, then he, he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. This, this, is, this is the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of sin is absolutely 100% contingent on whether or not Christ resurrected. We needed Him to raise from the dead. And as, as many other saints have said long before me, as many other preachers have said over and over again throughout history, there is, there is no other religious figure in the arc of history that is resurrected for people's sin. Every other religious leader, whether it be Joseph Smith or Muhammad or Confucius, doesn't matter matter who it is. They were laid in the grave and they remained there to decay and to rot, and in them is no forgiveness of sin. But in Christ and in His resurrection, we can find hope. Why? Why? because He beat death for us. Now how do we know this? According to what? According to who? Well, it says according to the Scriptures. Which Scriptures? Well, the prophecies of old told us that He would. Psalm 16.10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. The the Holy One, that word there, is a proper noun. It's a, it's a Davidic allusion to the Messiah, the one who would taste death but not torment. The one who would not be corrupted by death but defeat it. Isaiah 25.8 says this, He will swallow up death and victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the rebuke of His people shall be taken away from all, from all the earth, for the Lord hath spoken it. His victory over death became our victory over death. Hosea six one says, "Come and let us return unto the Lord, for He hath torn. Uh, he for He hath torn, and He will heal us. He hath smitten, and He will bind us up. And after two days will He revive us. In the third day He will raise us up, and we shall live in His sight. His resurrection is most assuredly prophesied in the Old Testament. But more than that, it tells us." That his resurrection is our resurrection. That he equates his resurrection with our own. It belongs to us. And we must hope in it. We must hope in it. And if we don't, we will certainly lose hope for a life. We will certainly lose hope for today. But again, the church in Corinth is has come to a place of doubt. There were We know this for a fact. We know this from the record. That there were people that were teaching that the resurrection of the dead had passed and that those who die in the future would have no hope of that resurrection. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this. Paul says this to Timothy. Um, He wants to, to encourage Timothy to defend truth by studying it. He says, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We quote that verse quite often. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their, wor- and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. Well, who are those guys? These were guys who, in verse 18, we learn, concerning the truth of erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. See, Paul was afraid that false teachings would overthrow the faith of some, that that it would produce doubt and confusion. He reminds them that the Scripture contains prophetic evidence of Christ's resurrection, but he also points to the validity of the first-hand accounts, which is what we're going to look at in a second. Now, some of us, is any, are there any crime junkies in the room? Yeah? Any fans of forensic files? Yeah? Dateline, anyone? Come on. I love it. I eat it up. So it's common in a murder trial to build a case on what's called circumstantial evidence. You guys heard this term before? Which is, which is essentially small bits and pieces of data, t- like timelines, right? They can, they can see where you're at based on where your phone records, you know. They're, fo- they're following you, basically. They know where you're at. They can see, they can get records of when you called who and what time. Like, they could see if you called someone like 100 times in a matter of like five minutes, which is never a good sign, that guy murdered someone. <laughs> right? It's never a good sign. They take forensic expertise and anecdotal evidence and they put it all together to create a compelling argument for whatever it is that they believe happened, right? You guys are familiar with this, right? But for detectives and prosecutors... It's preferable to have incontrovertible evidence, such as DNA evidence or first hand accounts. Judges want to hear testimony from people with first hand knowledge, witnesses who actually saw and heard important events. For example, if you're proving that you were abused, testimony from someone who saw the abuse happen will will be more convincing than stories from someone who wasn't there and only heard it secondhand. See, a good witness should be able to explain what they saw, heard, and experienced. So the only thing better than one witness is two witnesses, or three witnesses, or four or more. And this is true today, and it was true in the first century as well. So Paul presents the church in Corinth with evidence that Christ rose again. First he says the following, verse 5. And that he was seen, being Christ, of Cephas, then of the twelve. So the twelve witnessed the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Cephas being Peter. And the twelve, they saw Christ. And of course they did. We know that. But more than that, listen to me, more than that, they spent time with him in His resurrected form. They hung out with Him. They ate dinner with Him. They engaged with Him in conversation. The story of Thomas is always a powerful one. John 20, 24 says this, but Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto Him, We have seen the Lord. But He said unto them, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to to Thomas specifically, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side. And be not faithless, but believing. But Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And so here we have, we have evidence in Thomas and the twelve that they saw Christ. They were first-hand accounts. They were first-hand witnesses. But more than that, I want you to see in this story that for those of us who have not seen Christ face-to-face, that we have not had the opportunity to put our fingers on His wounds, that it is better for us in not seeing, in simply seeing the testimony of who He is in the Scriptures, that having not seen him face to face, that we might believe, that we might say to ourselves, that Christ has truly risen from the dead. And he has set me free. He has made me to believe. That's a place of blessing. See, Thomas was worried. He was concerned. He refused to believe. And he sat around for eight days pouting to the disciples and telling them that they were wrong. They couldn't have seen what what they said they saw. And in that time, he remained in the despair of no resurrection. And many of us live this exact same way. The problem is we've seen and we've known and we've witnessed and we've we've borne record to the resurrection, and yet we live like Thomas during the eight days, walking around in despair, denying the reality of what he's done and what he will do, forgetting the fact that we are eternal and that we will live with him forever, forgetting the fact that he will restore our bodies and make us right, that he will raise us from the grave. Verse 6 says that others witnessed as well. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. In other words, at the point that Paul wrote this, some had actually passed away. Some of those witnesses were no longer alive. But Christ was obviously observed by so many people and for for prolonged periods of time. In Matthew 28, verses 1 through 9, there was a, an early morning appearance and interaction with Mary and, and Mary, Mary Magdalene and Mary, her friend at the tomb. They engaged with him. They spoke with him. In Luke 24, verses 13 through 33, he appeared to the men walking on the road to Emmaus and he spoke with them and he ate with them. In John 21, verses 1 through 23, he encountered the disciples again as they were fishing on the sea and then he, he ate with them on the beach. He spent time with them. In Matthew 28, verses 10 through 20, we find that over 500 people encountered Christ at once in Galilee. And in verse 7, we're reminded that after that, he was seen of James and then all the apostles. Christ spent 40 days with the disciples, which culminated in his ascent in Acts chapter 1, as they are commissioned to go reach the world. The point is this, a lot of people saw him. And we have this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. A historical record where he says, look you want the proof most of the people are still living. Go find them. Go speak to, him, to, to them. to fi- Find out from first hand people that Christ is truly resurrected. He points to the evidence. And then third of all In verse 8, we see that Paul himself observed Christ on the road to Damascus. He was a witness himself. Verse 8 says, And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time. We know about Paul's experience with the resurrected Christ and his recruitment to the apostolic order from Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22 and Galatians chapter 1. The evidence of Paul's encounter with Christ was embedded into the way that he engaged with the people in Corinth. Listen to me. The church in Corinth had evidence of the resurrection of Christ because they saw the reality of the resurrection of Christ in the way in which Paul lived. They could see it in how he engaged with them in conversation. They could see it in his passion. They could see it in his message. They could see it in the way that he lived, how he'd given up everything to deliver this message to them. He was a man who knew how to be poor and without without food, without raiment. He was willing to go and do hard things. They knew that he was a man that had been beaten several times for his faith and for preaching the gospel. They know that he, they, they knew that he suffered much for this message, and in him was the evidence that they needed that Jesus rose from the dead. Do people see that in you? Do people know that Christ resurrected because of the way you behave and act and engage and speak? Paul, as well as all the other apostles, staked their entire lives on the reality of the resurrection. What reason would so many have in maintaining a lie with such great conviction? What motivation would all of these believers, the 500, the 12, what motivation would they have to maintain such a lie? It only just cost them their lives. Why would so many hazard all that was dear to them in this world by endeavoring to assert and propagate it unless it was the greatest truth the universe had ever known. And it's at this point in the letter that Paul's readers, those in Corinth, would say among themselves, yes, we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe, and we know it to be true. And that leaves us with this key point. Just as there is no message in the universe of any greater implication, there is no message in your life with greater implications. The resurrection affects you. Do you believe? That's that's the first thing. Is do you believe? Do you believe the testimony of Scripture? Do you believe in the testimony of, of all of the Christians throughout history that have given their lives for this very cause? I mean, here's the deal. You're going to look for hope because that's in our nature. Human beings look for hope. They look for happiness. They look for hope. But you're not going to find it. You're, you're not going to find it. I want to let you know, you're not going to find the hope that you're looking for. You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it in your career, and you're not going to find it in your friendships. You're not going to find it in getting married and having a family. and That is not where our hope lies. And so, the proposition for you this morning is: do you believe that Jesus defeated death? And if he did, it demands something of you. If you believe that truth, then it demands something of you. It demands repentance. Because you don't deserve that death, you don't deserve that resurrection. You've only ever just been a sinner living in this world, flawed, weak, aimless. But He gave everything for you. And what He's asking of you in this moment, right now, He's asking that you would give your life in return for the life that He gave you. He's calling you to believe in the resurrection. He's calling you to follow Him. He's calling you to be a disciple. He wants to make you a child of God. He wants to clean you and and rid you of that guilt and shame once and for all. He wants to give you a purpose that transcends all of your fleeting experiences and expectations. You ought to give your life to Him today. You should put your faith in Him. You should call upon Him. You should cry out to Him and say, thank you, God, I believe It's taken this long, but I believe, I believe. I believe that it's true. Now, there are many in the room today who've already put their faith in Christ. And I'm going to ask, just like Paul asked the church in Corinth, I'm going to ask you to remember when you first believed on Christ. Remember the zeal that you had. Remember how excited you were to know Jesus Remember when you would have hazarded your life for the gospel? What, what happened? What happened along the way? When did the ground get hard? How did the thing that was so dear to you become so burdensome? Remember when the resurrection was the only thing that you could think about and talk about? And you, you wonder why you despair. You ask yourself, well, what, what I mean, how have I lost my way? Why, how did I end up in this dark place? Why is it that I feel so tired all the time? Because you've let go of new life, you've buried it away somewhere. You've forgotten how good it is to know that Jesus died for you. And there's no greater triumph for Him than to know that you personally will spend eternity with Him in heaven. Remember when those facts were good enough? But we complicate it. For all of us who've forgotten how good the resurrection is, the invitation for you today is to worship in such a way as we close that reminds you and declares to God how good the resurrection really is, how good it is to know That he saved your soul and your spirit and your body. And that one day, whatever ailments that you suffer from, whatever physical difficulty that you have or emotional trauma that you face, that one day he's going to fix all of that. And he's going to give you a body that will likely be made of light. And it'll be without sadness, and it'll be without despair. And all the burdens of this life will be gone. He did that for you. And it is the, it is the only thing we need to remain motivated. To live for Him, and to preach, and to declare the exact same way we find Paul doing. Life can get really difficult. But we need to make the main thing the main thing. And We've got to get back to the gospel. We've got to get back to Jesus. Let's do that right now. If you know that you're not saved and you need to put your faith in Christ come forward, there's going to be people up here. Let's have the worship team come up. There's going to be people up here to meet with you. If you need to get your heart right before the Lord and you need to confess afresh the power of the cross Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do that right now. Let's worship the right way, in spirit and in truth. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all of the evidence of the resurrection. Thank you for the testimony of your scriptures, the testimony of the saints. Thank you for that. Lord, we are asking that you would make your resurrection powerful in our our hearts. And in our minds. That we would meditate on it. We would meditate on what You've done for us. We, we would meditate on the gift of Your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would love Him and we would adore Him. And, and we would worship Him with everything that we have. Or that You would use that to bring our life purpose. That You would use it to, to bring back the joy that we once had. The joy of our salvation. We want to know that. We want to live that. We want to be as little children, full of faith, naive to the woes of this world, naive to to fleshly desires. Bring an innocence into our life in terms of faith. Give us us a foolish naivety as it concerns pursuing you and, and being your disciple. Lord, we love you. We, we believe. Lord, for all those who are just now believing for the first time, they're hearing this story, and they're, they're hearing about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. They're, they're hearing about the evidence of Paul and his life, and they're hearing about the testimony of the saints who saw him resurrected, and they're compelled. Lord, I pray that you would give them the confidence to come forward and talk to somebody and find out what it means to be saved. That's the word that Paul uses, saved, to be saved. We need to be saved from our sin. We need to be saved from the reality of hell. God, give us the faith today of a free will to choose you because you chose us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ and his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.